From the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga. Today, my guest is John Deloney. John is the new Dean of Students at Belmont University here in Nashville, Tennessee. I met him just a couple days after he and his family had moved from Lubbock, Texas here to Nashville. And just over the past couple months, we've struck up a friendship. We sat down for breakfast one morning and just immediately hit it off. And uh, I had one of the most insightful conversations and hilarious conversations I'd had all year. It was a treat to have him over to the studio to sit down and chat with me about some of those things. Uh, John is brilliant. He's hilarious, and he's brutally honest. As we were talking, I was like, I want to write this stuff down. As I was editing this interview, I replayed a bunch of sections just to uh, soak in some of the brilliant things he had to say. Uh, He has a difficult job and a job he really loves, and the process that led him there is pretty fascinating. Um, I'm really thankful to get to call John a new friend, and um, get ready. This one is powerful. Um, and a lot of fun. Uh, you're going to want to listen more than once, I guarantee you. But hey, before we get to the interview, uh, I just want to remind you that over the month of February, we are doing a survey for our Pivot listeners. If you have a few minutes, would you please go to andrewosinga.com survey and tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, the podcast is doing really well. People continue to download in bigger and bigger numbers. And uh, we're at a point now where it would be really helpful if we knew a little bit more about who's listening. It's completely anonymous, uh, but it's super helpful for us. So, so if you can, go to andrewosinga.com slash survey and uh, give us a little hand there. That would be awesome. And you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, here is my conversation with John Deloney. Do you really? Yeah. I'm not telling anybody. Are you tripping? <laughs> not much. A little bit. I mean, Are it's you? a thing. It's a, it it's, a, it's a real thing. What's the measurement? What's the, what's the thing? I don't know. I mean, it's just like it's a thing you have to be, you're aware. You can't not be aware of it. Right. Like turning 36, you're just like, oh, it's my birthday today. <laughs> but this one, you're like, have I? You just can't help but take stock. And I think every birthday I get less and less. You can't keep denying that you're halfway there. Right. Yeah. And so at 30, <laughs> I'm third through. At 40, like, you're, you're in the middle of the bell curve. Like, yeah. <laughs> Give or take, you're halfway. <laughs> Depending on your intake of genetically modified, you're on the, you're on the downhill slope. Right. But <laughs> at 50, you can't. No. I, I, you know what? I'm going to still lie to myself at 50. It's 55 that I'll be like, that's it. It's a, we're, we're definitely halfway. <laughs> I just think that'll be such a weird psychological marker for me. Yeah, I can see that. So congratulations on 40. Oh, well, I'm not there yet. We'll see. <laughs> not um, there are, yet. This could still go south. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, dude, thank you for coming over and doing this. this I'm is... so excited. When we first had breakfast a couple months ago, you started telling me the story of your mother and her journey and how that has shaped you. Right. Would you give me kind of the, the brief overview of that? Sure. Of her story. Well, I can give you hers and, and my dad's playing to that. They sure, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Long story short, my dad was a homicide detective in Houston, um, late 70s all through the 80s, and 
my mom was a stay-at-home mom and just the kind of the the culture that she grew up in um women had no business going to college there's no reason to do that you got one job and and it's not there right and then my dad one weekend um he always he always volunteered with the a, a large church we went to and with the youth and then one weekend the youth minister transitioned out and he took that job and so it was a rather abrupt so he went from being a homicide detective murder detective hostage negotiator on the SWAT team like a bad dude and um <laughs> being a youth a, a youth minister right wow um and so and then in my head there there's that there's a time there where mom transitioned to um it, it was this great moment of courage in the house and I remember it I was a freshman in high school and it was either algebra or geometry, but we took those together. Me in high school and her at a local community college, she took one class. Hmm. And um, she did well, of course. And then the next semester, she took another class. And then she took another class. And that was at age 42. She had a professor who reached out and said, keep going. And then she had another, keep going. And then she finished her associate's degree, went to the, the interview, or to her uh, graduation. And then she kept going. And then at 57, she graduated with her PhD and... Now she's a tenured professor at a university and a department chair. So she had this whole – she wouldn't get on an airplane, right? The joke was it was 11 Xanax to get on the plane, right? And now she's flying all over the world. (laughs) Yeah, 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 (laughs) 11-ish, right? Um, And then at the same time, my dad went through this transition where um, he's a youth minister, still worked part-time with the police department locally. And so I just grew up in this house where – it was follow your nose and do the next right fun thing, right? And it was just such a blessing to never feel like life was tracked in that way. Hmm. And so... Did it feel like it was before your mom started going back to school and your dad took that job? Like I was 14, and so it was so like it trying to hold hands with a girl. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, that, I wasn't that savvy <laughs> um, to, to think that way. And it wasn't weird that dad... I didn't have enough sense to think that it was odd that my dad went from... Yeah, this profession. It's just what he did. To this, it's just what the way it was, right? Yeah. The profound shift for me was um, we lived in a small community outside of Houston, and um, where I was really shaped by this was, you know, he had the uh, the long cord on the phones mm-hmm. to, to the millennials listening to this. The the phones used to be plugged into the wall, right? <laughs> and people would call the house because he was a problem solver. He was someone who would help folks, and he would drag the phone into his closet and shut the door, and that closet backed up to my bed. And so at night, he would have these hard conversations where he was working through things with folks and helping people navigate their life. And at, you know, at a young age, I was downloading. And so you get to hear that, oh, that guy's got some challenges going on in their life, right? Or this situation is not how it appears on Sunday, right? And so at the time, I didn't realize how much that shapes you. But you realize, huh. man, people have a lot of challenges inside and outside their smile, right? Does yeah. that make sense? So w- w- when you finished high school, mm-hmm. you went, did you go straight to college? Man, so again, this you don't really. It, it's easy to look in retrospect and see the trajectory you're on, right? Sure. Um, I signed a track scholarship with a univer- a college outside of Texas, where I grew up. Um, maybe February or March of my senior year, met a girl at a church camp that summer at another school. Threw it all away and was like, in my 18 year old <laughs> wisdom, like I'm marrying her. And I went to a whole other college, and. Um, we broke up two days into welcome week, and I mean, it was, no. so here I am at this other place. But it didn't even feel weird, right? It's like, it was just free college, free everything. No, I'm going to get married. So let's just go that away, right? And um, in two weeks in, I was like, what have you done? And there was a disaster, and 
Um, but I stayed another semester, and then we're trying to transition out and transfer out and stayed another semester. And then a buddy of mine introduced me to his sister who was coming to college, and that's who I've been with for, you know, 20 years. And so it was just this weird... Did you end up, like, graduating from that college? Graduated from that college. Every year I had papers out to transition to transfer out um, and <laughs> just stuck around stuck around and ended up being a great blessing. And yeah, but now you have a career in higher education. Right. So it's interesting that that was your higher education experience. Oh, man. Yeah, I, the whole thing was bonkers. Uh, I was a... I had long hair and a bunch of earrings. I was just a loudmouth, brash idiot. And um, I was so golly. Uh, one, I just said the word golly, and I don't think I've ever used that word since like maybe 83 or 84. Uh, that's just weird. But I, yeah, I was so arrogant coming from the city, thinking I knew everything and thinking I was all tough and hard. I was such a, just a, a, a yapper, right? Mm -hmm. And after my freshman year, there was a, a student scandal, and the guy, uh, a senior or junior asked me to be on student government, and I was like, no, I'm not doing that. That's not my thing. And then he said, it comes with a scholarship. So I was like, you know, sign me up. And then I enjoyed that. And then the next year I moved up. And then my senior year, I'm the student body president. And there had been a transition of this saint of a human being named Marilyn Fannin, and she had come into a role. And she didn't know a lot about student affairs, and I didn't know anything about budgets and um, accountability, really. And so we worked together. And then I left there and wanted to go to Hollywood and be an actor, and I thought that was boring. And so I was home with my mom. I went there for a couple of weeks and couch Wait, surfed. So you went to Hollywood right after college to be an actor. Well, this is an awesome story. You want to hear okay, this one? I don't know it's any of this. super rad. So my senior year, my roommate all through college was a theater major. Okay. And I was this former athlete, couldn't let it go, intramural guy, right? Just the most annoying guy you can have at a college. <laughs> And I used to be somebody. Golly, just let it go, dude, right? <laughs> like, and I wasn't even that good in high school, man. It was just this. I just need to talk to my old 19-year-old self. But um, he was a super talented character actor. He's a finance guy. Just such a saint of a person. He's funny. His name's Craig. He lives in Colorado Springs now. He's awesome. Um, but I used to always give him a hard time, right? I'm 6'2". I've been this big since I was... Um, you know, in seventh grade, I've just been mm. a big guy and a good athlete. And he was the opposite. He's a short, squatty guy, an extraordinary a uh, actor. And I used to always give him a hard time, hard time. And finally one day he says, you know what? You know why you make fun of me? Because you can't do this. You could never do this. And I was like, I could do that. And he's like, you couldn't. Well, his girlfriend is going to be the lead in this play. And I thought it'd be so funny if I got <laughs> the lead and I got to kiss his girlfriend for the whole semester. <laughs> so I, uh, that's true. And I auditioned for the I part, got the job. And I, for a period of time, it, this is our, we shared a room at this little just dumpy apartment and the lights would be off and I'd say, hey, uh, you still awake? And he'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, I kissed your girlfriend today. And that was, it was over and over. <laughs> and he was so, so in this weird, just so kind of, it was awesome. So how it just happened, uh, um, some casting agents came to visit the, the, the giant university in the city next yeah. to my little private Christian college. And, um, they came over to do a little networking thing. And I asked a question during the networking thing and they said, Hey, after this, we're doing a thing we want you to come to this evening. And I showed up to that fit. I, I thought like, I think this is how, like, <laughs> this is how people get murdered. You just go to a an office at 10 o'clock at night. So we went and that led to me getting a um, small screen test, which led to a small Texas acting agent, which led to a thing in um, that 
at the end of the year where we went to Dallas and auditioned in front of a bunch of agents. And next thing you know, I didn't have anything else to do. And so I thought, well, that'd be fun to go to Hollywood and be in a movie. That'd be cool. And so I thought I wanted to be a writer, a screen. I, I, Goodwill Hunting came out and I thought, man, oh, everyone yeah. can write a script, right? You just have to just it. Do was it. just, you just need a good buddy from high school, like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. I thought, oh, that's all we need to do. And so um, then I went and crouch surfed for a few weeks. And then I came back to Houston to see my mom. She was having some, some health challenges. And I ran into my old track coach in the parking lot of my old high school. This is how lame can't let it go. I went to just nostalgically drive through my high school parking lot. Is there anything more annoying than that guy? I was that guy. And I ran into my old track coach and we talked in the parking lot and I said, I want to be a coach someday. And he's like, yeah, no. And um, we exchanged numbers and he'd become the athletic director of the whole um, school district. Oh, wow. And then he called a few weeks later, or a few days later and said, hey, I need a um, basketball and track coach, would you want to come be a high school teacher? I'm starting in a few weeks. And I was like, no, I'm going to be a movie star. And he said, well, it pays this. And I was like, yep, I think I'm going to be a high school teacher. So then I became a high school teacher for a few years at a public high school, a giant public high school in, in um, Houston. So and you were a coach, but you are also a teacher. I was a world geography teacher. I, at the time, so was you, what was wrong with the state you, education it, system. <laughs> <laughs> I was not an excellent teacher. I was not an excellent teacher. So you see um, your old track coach. In the parking lot of your trip through memory lane. That's correct. And somehow you saying, I want to be a track coach, which you've not thought through. And a month later, you're a geography teacher. I am a world geography teacher. Um, that is fantastic. But here, here's, the, here's the left turn that, that, that life laid in front of me. Um, I went to a, um, I didn't know at the time, I went to an extraordinary high school. It was huge, three, 4,000 students. It was, yeah, a, it was a large high school. Um, and then this sounds like it's out of a movie, but, um, right across the river was our rival high school, another big, large high school. And we grew up playing against those, those kids in that school and they were friends and rivals. It was fun. Mm -hmm. I just thought that my little corner of, um, the world was the way the world worked. And then I got this job at my rival high school across the highway. Uh, I mean, literally across the San Jacinto river. And I realized that my, the way I grew up was not the way the world works. And mm. so it was a very different socioeconomic group. Um, it, they just had very different lives and it just uh, challenges that I didn't experience growing up. And so the relationships I developed with these 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds was just transcendent for me because I got to see uh, the way the world worked in a different way mm. and it was profound and I started asking questions about privilege and started asking questions and that was before privilege was a word right it was it was that uh, you got access into a world that I didn't know existed um, and I found humanity and I found heart and I found love and my, my second year this little basketball team they give you a bus and a basketball team and they say go get them and hmm. the athletes that were so extraordinary, you didn't have to be a great coach with the, yeah. the freshmen I was coaching. Those young men were so awesome. And they um, asked great questions and they taught me hard lessons about um, when parents don't show up and, hey, coach, I can play, but you got to drive me home. And um, hmm. here I, I had some great coaches, Mike Gibson and Troy Kite, some of those guys who really lived into me and let me ask some hard questions behind closed doors and say, hey, why is this this way? And they were had been in the business for a long time. They didn't ask. They didn't judge me. They didn't ask. They didn't make me feel embarrassed. I was too naive to feel embarrassed, right? Um, and that's when the world started opening up a little bit different for me. At the same time, in college, I was a um, 
I was a punk rock kid, heavy metal guy. That was my world. And then my wife dragged me to, I think it was the Allen Theater at Texas Tech University to see some nerdy band. Her little, I was trying to woo her, and she's like, there's this band called Cademan's Call. You gotta go. <laughs> I was gonna go. say, I played that theater. <laughs> and I walked in, and I was like, is there any, the question was, is there any mosh pitting? Is there any moshing gonna happen? Well, sadly, no. And she was like, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so I always played acoustic guitar at these little, um, you know, talent shows and whatnots, and I wasn't great, but you could woo a room, right? And so there's a rowdy group in Lubbock, Texas, and out walks this all shucks banjo and meth kid named Bebo Norman, mm-hmm. who's like, oh, hey, everybody, and just the silenced a room. And I remember thinking there was a power in that that was similar to the heavy metal bands I watched come out on a stage and just melt an audience, right? Yeah. He walked out and silenced the people with just a, and I thought, I want to do that. Like, I want, what is, that was a new energy in a room that mm-hmm. I hadn't experienced before, right? And I didn't get it. I didn't understand. I didn't know that was a craft. I didn't know that was a job. I just thought, oh, you just had to get a, just same naivete that I was like, coach. I think I'm going to go to Hollywood. I think yeah. I'm going to be a track coach. <laughs> it's so insulting on this side of that, just to be so like cavalier about it. But, um, so then I had this great job where these young men and women that I was coaching, um, were, were doing extraordinary things and they were, they were teaching me and it was just a great reciprocal relationship. Um, uh, young man hit a shot as time expired. We won the district championship um, against my, my old high school. It was just oh, one of those amazing. moments out of a TV show. My wife was, uh, at the time, she was like, you did not look as cool as you thought you did on the <laughs> sidelines. <laughs> you have this, this picture of yourself as so cool. I was Gene Hackman. And she was like, you were not. I assure you, you look like an 11-year-old moron running up and down the sidelines. Um, And then I left that job just abruptly and Mm. decided I was going to travel the world and play music. And I literally thought that's how that worked. I thought you you just... Had you written songs? Did you have... That's. I mean, that's a stretch. (laughs) That's a stretch. Um, I had crafted some... um, I, I believed in the, the the shock and awe. I liked walking into a, ro- a room of youth group kids and being like the boogeyman, right? Um, and saying things that were, I could back up and, and say, that's not offensive, right? I'm just asking hard questions, right? It was that edgy mm-hmm. and kind of, it was the early 2000s yeah, where we were all hip and cool mm-hmm. and like, yeah, I wore beanies inside in the summer in Houston, right? Is that, right? <laughs> And so um, I was trying to take this like Metallica Pantera sensibility and funnel it into um, Christian folk music, right? That it was just this that intensity into this moment, right? And I had this um, Ani DeFranco was a mm-hmm. huge influence for me, and I remember as clear as day. It was before you could just get on the internet, and so she had a DVD come out, um, and I ordered it, and I had this moment, and this is maybe two thousand three, two thousand four. When I stepped back, oh, at the time, also, I am now a um, elementary school PE teacher at a, a private little Christian school that pays the bills, and then I could, the arrangement was, I'll do this, and then I can hit Travel the road whenever I need to, right? Yeah. So I'm playing at little churches and youth groupy things around the country and just met some extraordinary people, and, um, but I was terrible. I'm, terrible isn't the right, it was awful, right? Um, but I remember having this conversation with myself. Um, it was she had this. She was feeding the homeless, and she was revitalizing a church, I think, in in Buffalo, New York. So, and I remember thinking, man, I think she's more Christian than most of the Christians I know. 
and she wasn't a Christian. And I remember that being a, mm. a thing for me, and I didn't know what that meant. I just remember thinking she's living in a way, but she has a she has a a character about her that I've been programmed to say is unacceptable. But her actions are looking like this, right? And, yeah. and I just remember this that. This is Oni DeFranco. Oni DeFranco, yeah. And I remember it not sitting with me. Does that make sense? Then I, as all 25-year-olds do, I started having my own faith crisis. And I was newly married. And um, you start worrying about bills. And you start worrying about, like, the pre-programmed things you got to do with your life. And are we going to buy a house? And are we going to have kids? And that, just those questions. And so we transitioned back. To, we left Houston. And my wife and I, uh, my new wife and I, and we moved to a community where she'd have some community because she had moved to Houston to be with me and um man I just I wasn't good <laughs> I was terrible man so I traveled around and wasn't any good and then um the uh one of the student affairs folks the dean of students at my alma mater resigned uh associate dean resigned and he was over the counseling center and student conduct and the health clinic and I applied for that job as a 26-year-old knucklehead. To be associate with, dean of students. With a bachelor's degree. And, a bachelor's um, degree in? Um, humanities. Okay. Like liberal arts. Just straight across. I had enough that I wanted to go to grad school. So I had applied to grad school and I'd gotten into a few places. I got into a theology grad school and then a marriage family therapy. And then I would drop out. I was like, I don't want to go to school. And I got this. Um, then the um, a guy named Randall DeMint and Marilyn Fan and the woman from who had, she is. They were both senior leaders, and they took a chance, and it was a pretty remarkable thing. Hmm. And so that kind of shifted my whole life sideways. So then you, so then you were the associate dean of students. So far over my head, you know, it was so far underwater, I didn't even know it, right? Um, and I jumped into grad school. So were you thinking like, oh, I got this? It's, uh, like every, just kind of waltzed into every situation. Yeah, 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 I really did. And um, and again, it's these saints who. Um, you look back and you just, you can't even, you don't even have words. You don't have um, the, the the level of gratitude. The river of gratitude is so deep because there's mm. no reason not to be in that room. I didn't have the wisdom to be in that room, right? What I had was a passion for loving people and had a, a, um, a deep passion for trying to be authentic, right? And so one of the things I'd always felt is there a, there's a disconnect between um, leadership and those being led, right? And I always wanted to bridge that gap. I wanted folks to know, hey, I, I get exhausted too. I get frustrated too. Um, I didn't know what that meant. You know what I mean? I, I, that's, that's a 26-year-old trying to figure out the world, right? So um, then I jumped into grad school as fast as possible and raced through a master's degree and a PhD in education and thought, I'm going to go down this road and be a college president. And so I ended up... Um, had it several years there, and then I saw got real close to what a college president does, and I was like, I don't want that job ever. Wait, so how so. quickly did you go from, I'm a singer-songwriter driving around the country playing youth groups to, I want to be a college president? That is a, that's a leap. Like a month. Yeah, like a month. Because over the time, here's what I loved about, <laughs> very quickly, people were saying things like, hey, could you come back to our group and not bring your guitar? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but just tell stories, right? And so I found myself in a place where I was good at public speaking. I was good at storytelling. I was a good public speaker. I could just go sit down and talk to folks, to a room of people. And um, I didn't know that was a skill. I didn't know people practiced mm -hmm. that or learned that. Um, and I just loved being with human beings. And so, yeah, it, it, again, it was this. That's when you look back and see how you were raised. It was a mom and dad that just said, yep, go for it. Um, try that and try that and try that. And um, 
gosh, what a blessing that is, right? Yeah. Um, there is no brakes. There is no train track. Just wander off that way in the woods. And you can do that, right, when you've, when you've got a support network like I did. And uh, men and women in the church that I grew up with, friends that are just lifelong people. And so, um, man, and then I transitioned away. And that's when things started to fracture for me. And um, I, there's an old saying in the counseling profession, um, was it the, the tyranny of fulfilling all of your dreams, right? Because you still have to look in the mirror. And we have these ideas that there's going to be these external metrics that are going to fill up this gap, whatever that gap is, and make you whole, right? And you find yourself married for 10 years, and you find yourself, you know, having a kid, and you find yourself making your way up whatever professional ladder. And the gap between where you think you're going to be psychologically, right, well, whole, mm-hmm. just gets wider and wider. And so... Um, I found myself among a blessing at another university, um, and my wife was a professor. Um, I was working a few central jobs there, and then I got asked to be a part of a team that um, we went into, or basically sequestered us for uh, a year, and it just said this was in how, how about 2010, 2011, maybe? So you're working at a different college. Different college. So the world has collapsed at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the economy's falling apart, and everyone's jagged. And um, kind of don't know what to do, right? And all the things that we believed about progress and just everyone started about asking questions. About climbing the ladder, here's how to... Like, what does that this, mean, yeah. right? Um, another big thing I, I should probably loop back. Um, on my mom's way up, she worked at Deloitte & Touche and then she worked at Enron. And she worked back at Deloitte & Touche. And wow. so I was also born with this healthy skepticism is, is it real? Hmm. And this healthy skepticism of it could all go away. Right. One of the greatest blessings my dad gave me was as a homicide detective, he said, often we think of murder in a big neon sign. Um, and when you sit down and interview a guy, that's not the case. And you suddenly walk out of that room thinking, but for a set of few circumstances, I am that man. Right. Mm. And it makes you really humble to realize, um, man, that guy and me are on the same until the road diverged. Right. And we're just a few steps from each other. And mm. um, or Enron, the biggest company on planet Earth until it wasn't, right? And so I did grow up with a healthy sense of um, none of this is real, right? And then when that starts leaking into faith, it starts leaking into your marriage, starts leaking into being a parent and your job, then that becomes a poison, right? So that thing that could be healthy can also hurt everything around you. Yeah. Um, and so I, I had this sense that everyone was sleepwalking through their life, right? That was just my arrogant late 20s, early 30s. And so my I felt my role on earth was to bring as much energy to a room as possible. And if somebody felt, if I sensed comfort in you, my job was to leave you like on. Like a, like a beat poet. There you go. Have you thought about this though? It's like, <laughs> man, I'm really feeling good. You know, this could all end, right? And what I thought it was, it was cause I have low self-esteem. And I was desperate to be the smartest guy in the room. Right. But, um, I didn't realize until 2010, 2011, I was a tuning fork. I was absolutely melting people, right? And some of that was to fill my own need to be loved and my own need to be seen as wise. Um, so about 2010, 2011, I get asked to be on this team. We go into this room and kind of look at what's the future of education? What's the future of and technology? The college pulled this together? The president was a um, – his name's Phil. He's a brilliant guy. And um, he said, I think there's some changes coming just for all of us. And what's that going to look like? Mm-hmm. So the future and, of education, the future of technology. Right, and I was at this school, it was about 4,000 students, but they were a beta school for Apple, for Google, for oh, wow. some of these 
big folks and they would ask um, for Pearson. They would ask these questions and they would send it off to this little school in Texas to see what happens, right? And so we were tinkering with iPhones before, you know, they they were in everything. And we were tinkering with um, technology and th different tools. And so really we got to kind of stake in and rappel off the side and see what the, the future of the world looks like. Right. And I freaked out. I lost it. And I... I got scared in a way that I hadn't been scared before because it was so different. I didn't have a narrative for it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, oh, you mean there were, there's a company that's recording every text we hit send on, right? There's somebody else mining every email. Like, what? Like, all the emails, right? Um, around this time, I testified in a, in, a, in a criminal case, and the person got a, a long time in jail. But I'll never forget being haunted in 2011, 2012, somewhere around there. They pulled the Facebook page down in court and were reading private messages. And this is all the same time for me, reading this person's private messages to the courtroom. And I remember leaning over to the attorney next to me and I said, how did they get those? Those are private messages. And this, it's still in my head, this laugh, like, <laughs> there's no private messages. And I remember thinking, wow, so the paper that I write... Uh, we started talking about it was real say uh, we started talking about the future that we're all experiencing now back in 2010 2011 2012 mm. which is so you mean a 14 year old is not going to get to be 14 because they're going to send something electronically that's going to be there when yeah. they're 38 and 48 and 58 right or whatever you think about it a 62 year old is going to get in trouble for being a 14 year old that's years right ago. and what does this look like in black and white you lose the context and you lose the laughter and you lose the relationship out of this it's just printed off right and so um, I, I was struck with something as, as I've kind of talked, I was just kind of cavalier walking through life. And then I got struck with a sense of anxiety that I had never dealt with. I didn't know what that was like. I didn't know mm. what that was. And it was uh, the way I describe it is being betrayed by your own body, right? And so I ultimately took, my wife and I took a, um, here's my moment of grace. I got in a car one day. At that time, I was over so much at the university, I could not have been at work for a couple of days and no one even known. Um, hmm. And you have, by that time, everyone was texting everything and emailing and phone calling so, uh, or cell phoning that you could just be where you were. Yeah. And I was walking to work. I was so freaked out. I had timed the next market collapse and the end of housing. By the way, uh, I have no stocks. I've got no money in the stock market, but I had just timed it. Um, this is how out of sync I was with reality. And um, I sold my house, and I moved my wife and me and my son into a residence hall that on the college campus. My son was two at the time. And um, just kind of waited for the end of the world to come. And two things happened that were that you look back, and they're just shapeshifter moments for you. One was I was walking to work one day, and I turned around, and I got in my wife's 2000 Corolla, and I drove to another city where I had a friend who's a uh, medical doctor, an MD, physician. And I walked down his clearly not uh, HIPAA-compliant office, and I walked straight to his office, and I said, I'm losing my mind. I need you to sit here and listen to me. And his name's Jeff Smith. That guy sat with me for two and a half hours. And he just listened and listened and listened, and that was the first time I just spoke. The other is there was a guy named Randy Harris, and he is a monk. He's a professor, and he um, – he spent a year with me, every me and him and a guy named Slade, and we met every week for the year, and we talked about being scared and talked about being fearful, and he gave me this one statement that changed my whole life. He said, um, people are coming to me for answers about the economy and about life and about higher education. He said, I don't know. I don't have the answers. But my goal now is that everyone's a little more peaceful than when they first met me. And I thought, 
that's my life trajectory. And so mm. then I started asking hard questions like, what are you doing, right? The things that we all should be asking at 18 or 19 when we're in college that I'd waited till I was 30, 32 to ask. And in charge of a university. There you go, right? And um, then it was like, what are you actually good at, man? What do you want to do? And I kind of came to this winnowing moment, which was um, I'm good at giving people bad news with grace. And so then I thought, well, what do you do with that, right? And then um, I joined Dr. Andy Young's team. Uh, we transitioned back to Lubbock, and I was a dean of students at a law school as a non-lawyer. And they brought me in just to work with folks with mental health issues and who were struggling. And um, law school's hard, and it's a tough transition for people. And I joined um, the Lubbock crisis team, and it was a group of people that goes out after hours, all hours of the night. And if somebody wakes up and their two-year-old has passed away, they call us in to sit with moms and dads and or if someone has taken mm. their life we go help the people who found the bodies and we go help people who are about to get the bad news and we be, we're there for the police officers who are having to work this awful scene and um that's when i really felt the sense of peace and grace that um kind of said here's what your role is for the rest of your life and so then i started taking a counseling class here and there and um hopefully this year i'll finish a second phd in counseling and that'll i'm hoping this is the back end of my trajectory right <laughs> um and then last year at christmas my wife and i had like a come to jesus moment we were we we went kind of like a i'll call it a planning wife and husband retreat and what's the future going to look like for us and no more colleges no more higher education um, so you're going to quit college i'm going to stop i'm going to graduate i'm going to be done i'm going to be a counselor at a local i just want to be a low-key counselor and um so then I moved us out of Texas, and we're now here at Belmont University, which was one of the most extraordinary colleges in the country. And so, um, again, another follow so wait, at your nose. But, but you took you, you you and your wife went on this little retreat. Yep. You said we're done because she's a professor. Yep. You're the dean of students at a law school. That's right. And you decide we're done with higher education. Right. We got an offer. Um, I got an offer at a college in Texas that would have been our dream job, and we went out. And there's just something one right about it. Mm. And at that point, I was speaking from a place of wellness, and not a place from arrogance, and a place from humility, and a place of um, like let's be realistic, right? And um, this isn't for me anymore. It's not what I'm here for. And I think it was only in that moment that then I was allowed to actually hear what was next, right, and actually see what was next with clarity, uh, mm. as opposed to where am I supposed to be, right? Um, yeah, and no, no more higher education. We're never going to leave Texas. Um, I'm just going to be a small town counselor and I'm going to work with rural folks and, um, work with doctors and lawyers in this small community. That was the plan. We shook on it. <laughs> and, um, then I had a friend from back in the day and she's like, you should check out this little college in Tennessee that I didn't know much about. So your friend says, check out this college. Mm -hmm. What was the conversation of going we're done with all these things, mm -hmm. staying in Texas, no more higher education too. Actually, we're moving to Tennessee to a bigger role in higher education. Um, I think it's because I went back to, and this has kind of become the buzz cheesy word in the, in the leadership blogs, but I didn't have a why, I had a where, right? And so I was mm. so obsessed with where I was headed and I just never stopped to ask, why are you gonna go there, right? What's the point of getting there? if you've never asked that question. It never even occurred to me to ask that question. Um, and then something that Randy Harris had given me that's um, just a bit of grace, which was um, the world currency right now is sarcasm and pessimism, 
right? That's what is presenting as wisdom in our current age. Mm. And joy and optimism, you just sound stupid, right? You just sound dumb if you walk into a room and say, you know what, it's beautiful outside, I'm in the air conditioning today, and my kids are healthy. People, will, you walk out, they're like, what's wrong with that guy, right? And so um, it became this why, and it was, I'm, I, can, I can give people tough news, I can help them get from this phase of their life to the next one. And I, I'm going to be intentional about bringing joy and optimism in whatever room I walk into. And I had a picture of what that looked like, and it was a small-town counseling clinic, and then another picture presented itself. And so the, the there took care of itself in this particular season, mm. and when as long as I was staying true to this, this why. And it was, it was pretty remarkable how the need came together. Hmm. So your role now as dean of students – I have a vague understanding of what that actually might sure. be. So I'd love for you to, to, to tell me about what, what that job is. You've done it at a few sure. places now. Um, but also when you, when you say you have a gift for giving people bad news with grace, right. how does that inform you taking this kind of role? Um, that's a great question. So a couple of things. One is like the dean of students. I, I call myself the chief hospitality officer. If the admissions office says you're welcome, you're, you're coming to my college. My job is to make sure you belong and that you have the bottom couple of rungs of Maslow's hierarchy so that you have the opportunity to be successful, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the other 153 is that's the, you know, students are in class about 15 hours a week. The other 153 hours, that's my classroom. And that's where students learn to disagree. That's where they learn to um, play in their murals. That's where they learned arrogance and humility and how to fight and come back together, where they sleep and where they eat, all that. That's my classroom, right? And so I take seriously that those lessons, and I think they're profound, which is yeah, you're going to be a biologist. What does a Christian biologist look like, right? You want to be a nurse. How does that – you can't email somebody like that and expect to keep a job, right? Hmm. So how do you become a nurse who's got these great skills – and be the compassionate caretaker that that family needs in that moment when they bring you their most precious person and say, help us, right? And so that's a, that's a pretty profound it's, – it's a, it's, a it's a heavy job. It's heavy. Um, but it's a, such a blessing. It's so fun, right? You're going to college basketball games for a living. It's, it's a good gig, <laughs> right? Um, and then the giving uh, – the one thing I say over and over in my job is I'll never lie to you, right? And there's times that I have to call a mom and say, your son or daughter's passed away. Or your son or daughter um, is in critical care and I've, I'm going to be with them or I'm with them right now and you need to get here right away. Um, and there's other times that sometimes the most graceful moment, I, I heard this from an old friend, Wayne Bernard, said sometimes the most graceful thing I can say to somebody in a moment is not right now, right? And mm -hmm. I don't want you to spend this kind of money in this kind of environment if you're not going to be successful. And so what if we helped you transition out and then we'll transition you back in? Or to tell somebody you've got an addiction problem or to tell somebody my story, like I've had anxiety too. And there's another side to it with, you know, there's a light at the end of that tunnel if you'll do the work. Right. So, um, hmm. there's just being present. The other side of it is, is you deal with a lot of folks who are upset with you. They wanted, had a, a picture for what their kid's world was going to turn out and it's different. And so it's recognizing those moments of grace. I can, you can fight fire with fire or I can recognize, um, you know what most, there's just not a lot of bad people. Andy, there's, tired people and exhausted people and scared people and lonely people. And if I can see through that on the long email when someone's telling me how awful I am and how awful my college is and see through, man, they're hurting because they love their kid and their kid's hurting. Um, 
then that's a moment of grace I can circle back and mm. uh, be in contact with them. Do you get a lot of emails like that? Is yeah. That, yeah. So yeah. Do, have you learned to sort of filter that? I feel like I would read that and immediately just spiral. Sure. Gotcha. So I'm sure th that must have happened at least at first. Does that still happen? Do you... Oh, yeah. Um, do you kind of go, all right, I can translate this pretty quickly? Um, so I don't like... Um, we tend to use the metaphors of the age to talk about people, and I don't like it, right? So a lot of what we have about like things like letting off steam or uh, those are from Freud, who is in the middle when the industrial age is coming online, right? Yeah. The fact that I just said coming online is a very right now yeah, or she downloaded that or um, hmm. uh, so we use the words of the age and I don't like metaphors like getting well or I'm broken or I need to fix that because it's it, 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 it implies a static state, right? My wellness trajectory is a daily decision. My marriage and my decision to love my wife every day is a decision. And I think when we opt out of that, it lets us not put in the hard work. And then you wake up and you find yourself so mm. distant from your partner, so distant from your job, or so different, distant from your why. And so um, I don't know why I was, why was I telling you that. Um, I don't know, but I'm really glad you did. We were talking about getting those angry emails. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, so – so, um, one of the I, I'm a natural introvert. Um, people are usually surprised. You are a natural on, introvert. On the on Myers Briggs, I'm an, I'm an intro introvert. That does surprise me. Um, but I also know enough about the psychology. If you read a couple of fabulous books called Loneliness or um, what's the other great one that I read the other day that just absolutely knocked my socks off. Um, it's by Terrence Real and it's called. Just lost it. I'll think of it in a second. Right. Um, I don't want to talk about it. That's what it's called. I don't want to talk about it by Terrence Real. If you read one book in the next five years, read that book. Really? Knock your socks off. Um, I know enough about the psychology to know I have to have other people in my life and I have to have men in my life, which means I've got to take the risk and I've got to walk up to a stranger like Andy at a coffee shop and be like, dude, you're changing the world. You don't even know it. My name's John. Will you be my friend? Right? And I go home and I just pace the house like, that was super awkward and weird. But I know that's part of it for me, Right. Um, and I've got to be intentional about it. And so mm. say, I don't have any social media. I've got no Facebook. I have no Twitter. I know the things that I, that set me off. I know the things that keep me well. And so, um, I know moments of my day when I can handle those kind of emails and I build them in. And I also know moments when usually I'm speaking from truth and I also don't have any problem calling somebody on the phone and saying, I screwed something up and I'm sorry. And for me to get to that, like looking back at the just obnoxious and arrogant 22 year old, 23 or 25 year old to, um, Here's why a arrogance and all the answers in the world are worth nothing when you're holding a mom whose child is dead in the next room. There's nothing to say except I'm going to sit here and there's no – I don't care how much education you have. I don't care how many PhDs you have. There's nothing to say other than presence, right, other than touch, other than I'm so sorry. And there's, there was such a humility for me that came with that. It was such a beating. It was such a beating to realize that your body has taken over for you because your head is clearly out of the game here and there's something going wrong, right? And so working from a place of humility, it's, it's hurt people hurt people, right? And so lonely people hurt people. Sad, scared people hurt people. So it's less personal. Um, I, don't, I don't take it on as much anymore, but occasionally it hurts. Occasionally mm -hmm. it hurts, yeah. All jobs have that, right? I mean, oh yeah, all jobs have that. So 
it's not unique, but and I put I set Man, myself my, up. In my job, people don't tell me that I'm horrible. They they tell everyone else. There you go. <laughs> right, right. They just don't buy your record. Yeah, they quietly tell you, right? Um, yeah, and I also understand education is a relationship, right? And it, it's the the more we've made it transactional, I think the messier and uglier it's gotten. It's a relationship, and so. Um, and I stand up in front of a thousand parents every year and say, I'll take care of your kid. We'll do the best we can to your kid. And so absolutely if they call me and don't think we're taking care of them, I deserve that phone call, right? Um, I deserve that email. So, yeah. cause I put myself in that position. Hmm. Is this your first time living out of Texas? First time in my life. Yeah. When did you guys move here? I mean, it was at the beginning of this school June, year. June. So yeah. this is your what? Eight months in? Yeah. We're, we're fresh and new. What has that transition been like? It's been you? a mess. Yeah, it's been yeah. a mess, and it's been uh, messy, and it's been a blessing, and it's been tough. There's an old psychiatrist named William Glasser, and he gave me an, uh, an image for family counseling that is just kind of I use everywhere now, and it is a husband and wife. We speak in words, and we think in pictures. Um, we speak in words, and we think in pictures. Right, and so when you have a couple sitting on your couch who's come to you for counseling, and he has a picture in his head of husband, and she has a picture in her head of a husband, and we're both using the same word. We can have a come, like a lovely come-to-Jesus conversation together. I need you to step up. I need you to be a better husband. And he's like, I'm on board. We go to the marriage retreat. We love each other, and then we come home. And I have a picture of a husband that is never around. I just want my wife to have everything she wants. I'm going to make money. I'm going to take another job. And she has. I'm going to work out more. And she has a picture of a husband who's got a little bit of a gut and sweatpants and is just more around. And we both double down on our pictures and work as hard as we can for the other person, and we still end up 100 miles apart. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah. And so um, one of the mistakes my wife and I made in this transition is we each had a picture of what the transition is going to look like, right? And I got super lonely, and I didn't expect that. And she had a vision of what the move was going to look like, and I jumped. So what the, the blessing on this side of it is really working hard to – come back and have a conversation and come back and have a conversation. And that's when you, I've got, I'm so blessed with such an extraordinary partner um, and who's willing to have those conversations and can we have those conversations? And so, man, it's such a, it's such a blessing. So at the same time, it's been messy and hard. It's never been better than right now. Right. Hmm. And we've just learned to love the messiness of it. And before, again, when you're trying to get to a destination without a why, without a reason, then you really put a lot of stock into how you get there. When the the why is we're going to be solid and we're going to be connected and we're going to have this be on this journey together, wherever you end up is going to be cool. You can figure it out. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's beautiful. Okay, I, I want to go back to something you said earlier. Okay. Uh, you made an offhanded comment. I wish I could go just talk to my nineteen year old self. Yeah. Uh, I I imagine that you get to spend a lot of time talking to nineteen year olds. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. So. In a sense, you get a chance to do that mm-hmm. on a daily or weekly basis. So when you see kids that you Dude, go, that was a Dr. Phil move right there. I do that every day. That was awesome. <laughs> Andy. So when you see... When, wow, when well you're played. you're talking to kids... Thank you. I'm proud of that one. You're ex- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. When you're talking to kids and you go, oh, I recognize that. Yeah. What what do you say to them that you wish you would have said to you, that somebody would have said to you? Or did somebody say it to you and you didn't listen? That's another question. So but. one of the neatest moments in my life has been um, getting to go back to college as an old person, as a late 30s, 40-year-old, because I had to do a practicum again. 
I had to be an intern again. At, and at what age? At, you know, 37, 38, 39. Um, I had to go be an intern. Wow. And so I got to work for this young psychologist named Michael Gomez, and he is a, um, a trauma psychologist, and he works with traumatically abused kids, mm-hmm. um, folks that are just, I mean, they just rip your heart out. And he's one of the smartest, kindest people in the world. And so um, at the time I was working for him at this practicum, which was, I mean, I would talk to children and I'd go in the room and watch him work and we would have short interactions. And then it was just me asking a lot of questions. Um, so here I'm, I'm dean of students of the law school by day and then by early morning I'm running – the next morning I'm working with these sexually abused kids and I'm running back to my job here. Wow. And I have a little boy, right? So all this is – this isn't – academic this is like oh i got a kid right and it's mm-hmm. i'm balancing these children i'm seeing over here and my child i'm seeing at home and they're the same age there you go and so i would ask questions veiled questions i thought i was being really smart i wasn't um that were really parenting questions and i would ask things like well how are you going to teach a kid to respect how do i teach a young men to respect women if this is the model and um i remember him laughing and he was so smart, so quick, and so gentle. But he laughed and walked into the next room, and he just said, John, kids don't listen to you. They watch you. You can say whatever you want, but if you want to teach a kid how to treat somebody, you act, you treat people right. And I remember thinking, oh, man, you mean my kid's watching me? He's not just listening to me, right? <laughs> um, but that became a profound statement for me in the work I do with adults. Everyone's that way, right? Mm-hmm. You can say whatever you want. People are just going to watch you. And... Um, and then kind of in a post-fact world that we live in now, I've stopped asking people because all the, all the people I work with every day are brilliant, right? Everyone I work with is brilliant, and they've been in school for 10 years about their one sliver of the world, and they're brilliant, and they're kind, and they're generous. But I've stopped asking, what do you think? Because it's easy to get an academic answer. I've started asking, what do you do with your kids? And so as I'm walking out of the doctor's office, a doctor performed a life-saving surgery on my wife. It was this heavy moment. As we're walking out, I'll never forget turning to her, saying, Dr. Fai, do you spray your kids with bug spray? Like, cause Deet, you know, is going to kill us all or whatever. And she looked at me and kind of rolled her eyes cause I'd done this about 10 other times. And she said, I, I, you know what? It, it's not probably, I'd put bug spray on my kids. And I was like, cool. I'm putting bug spray on my, like, that's the answer to that question. And I'm forever. I'm good. And I moved on. Right. So I could have asked her, Hey, what do you think about, she would have given me a mm-hmm. dissertation. So back to the original question, I don't tell 18, 19 year olds, a lot of stuff. I try to show it and try to live it. And what I teach the the professional staff and the faculty I work with is you're training nurses, you're training biologists, you're training future attorneys, um, but they're also watching how you live. Mm-hmm. And you are setting the standard for here's what a Christian lawyer, here's how they respond to questions that they don't like. Here's how they challenge somebody with a different view. Here's how a Christian biologist answers emails. Here's how a Christian – and so here's how someone who claims Christ as their, as their theoretical framework lives their life. And so that to me is the – uh, I can tell a student, be respectful to a 19-year-old. I wouldn't have heard that, but I would have remembered now that guy treated me in a way in a really tough moment in my life that was graceful and it was peaceful and that gave me some solutions and some answers. And so um, I guess the way I would talk to my 18-year-old self, 19-year-old self would be to show them. And I look back on the people in my life and I can, man, there's just, you know, you just see the cascade of people who have been there for you, right? Yeah. And in all honesty, that's where, and the, the reason I just, I bombarded you at that, where was it? Was it, uh, it was like a coffee shop or something? Oh, that, yeah. We, yeah uh, Frothy Monkey. Yeah. No, but I like came up to you. Oh, no, ta- we were at the, um, 
We went to see the fireworks at Lipscomb, and we ended up putting our blankets next to each other. Yes, you guys had just moved I to just, town. Yeah, I fanboyed you. And you sent me an email like a week before saying, "Hey, I'm moving to Nashville. We should hang because we have a few mutual friends." That's right. And then, but then we ended up just sitting right next to each other at that thing, and you were like, "Hey, I know you." And so going back to that analogy I gave you about um, pictures, mm -hmm. that's why this, what you're doing here, is so profound. Is that. I think a lot of the anxiety and anger and loneliness and fear of the world is, it is changing and it's shifting and it's moving and we don't have a model for what that looks like, right? Like my granddad was a cotton farmer and my dad was a cotton farmer and I'm a cotton farmer, but now you're telling me I can't farm cotton here. I don't have a picture of what's next. And when someone will sit down and have this conversation and say, well, here was this track I was on and now I'm on this track and here's how I got there. That's where the pivot becomes this Golly, what a gift of grace in the world right now, right? Hmm. That's what you as your Dr. Phil, I mean, you, you are Dr. Phil. That was pretty, that was pretty awesome. <laughs> but that's where it's just such a profound gift because I can't tell a 19-year-old what to do. I can say, here's the road I chose and here's how I would do it differently. And I'm going to present to you in a moment of grace. So I, hmm. I get to repeat myself. But Man, well, thank you for saying that. That's yeah. very kind. Oh, here's one other thing. I don't know how you edit this in. Are you going to just keep it going? <laughs> Here's the other uh, moment of great humility in my life. Um, so here I am. I would have considered myself a crisis expert. That's what I did. And then um, my wife, we transitioned out and we moved back to um, Lubbock, Texas. And we had a series of miscarriages right in a row. Mm. And here I am the crisis expert. People called to come be with them in their moments. And I crisis experted in my own house. And I went to this little um, conference this little counseling conference and somebody had a session called um, counseling women with miscarriages. And I thought, I know how to do that. I'll go sit into this conversation. And she had a slide of some sort that was seven things to never, ever say. And dude, Aww. by the time it was over, I hadn't only said all seven of them. I had expounded and provided an exegesis on all seven of them. I wanted to crawl under the table and I had this sense of shame that I had failed in my own home so badly, right? Um, the one person I committed to God I'll take care of forever, um, I just utterly failed, right? And it sent me on a mission, which was different, right? The first time I went to grad school was I need to get a degree. I need to get to the end of this I place. Need to, yeah. I didn't have a why. I needed that certificate. This time it was personal. This time I'm going to learn how to do this in the right way. And interestingly enough, it was learning how to talk way, way less and be way, way, way more present, and be way, way, way less impressed with yourself. Um, and we're still living out of that, right? The, some of the things I said, you can't ever have back, right? You can't ever mm -hmm. have that moment back, and how do you live into grace uh, moving forward? So I always want to give, it goes back to your email question. Um, hmm. People often want to take back that initial response of hurt and pain, and um, it's just trying to be as graceful as you can with folks. Yeah, I met a guy recently who has become a counselor. He was a lawyer, and he's... Um, now he practices law like three days a week and is a counselor two days oh, a week. Oh, wow. What a saint. And uh, I mean, I've, I just, we kind of met in passing, but he was saying that he, he went through a divorce mm -hmm. and then went to study why marriages fail. And that's how he became a counselor. Wow. Because he went, oh. Yeah. Oh, whoops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I'm real smart. Right, I'm a lawyer. Right. 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 Making all the money. I'm doing all the, yeah. And, and I clearly don't know what I'm doing. Right, I, right, I, right. I need to go learn that. I thought that was where that is such a, a an important exclamation point at the end of our cultural sentence right now is getting another 
person to blame isn't going to solve the problem, right? Hmm. Um, being angry elsewhere does not fix that. Yeah. And it's sitting down across at a, at a, across a table and saying, let's talk through this. This hurt in this way. Um, or it would really be helpful if you didn't say this. And that goes back to a culture of hospitality. That doesn't go <laughs> to a culture of um, I get this and you don't that and I, I, I'm upset here. And you're, man, if my goal is to make sure you're welcome, if my goal is to make sure you and I can meet at the well, there's not a lot we can't get past, right? And then I can hear you when you say, hey, over time or in the last season or this one time, you hurt me in a pretty profound way. When you say this, that hurts. And then I can hear that gracefully at a table, right, with a proverbial roll in my hand and say, I'm sorry. And then we can go on to what's next, right? Yeah. Not draw these spaces. And so for somebody to say, I failed, you can spend your life blaming, right? Or you can mm-hmm. sit down and look in the mirror and say, what did I contribute to this? And yeah. I want to answer this question. Yeah, it's a pretty unique moment. What a great, whoever that is, high five them. That's yeah, awesome. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, so my last question, I know clearly there's no five-year plan, 10-year plan at this point. Yeah, clearly, clearly. That's right, that's right. <laughs> I don't mean that to, no, you know it's, what I mean? Like, I, hey, trust me, it's very clear. That's very clear. <laughs> but you guys have moved. Yeah. Changed states. Took another job that you said, oh, we're never going to do this again. Right, right, right. And it seems like you're really really enjoying it, sure. really resonating with it. Do you have kind of a vision for what this next season of your life might bloom into? Do you see it kind of taking a shape that's what you thought or different than you thought? Um, and there might not even be an answer to that question. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a great question. It's something that um, I've really, over the last five or six years, tried to walk away from. Mm. And... Um, and not in an arrogant way. So that meant following Dave Ramsey to a T and working crazy so that we didn't owe anybody any money. And taking second, third, and fourth jobs, even when we were making good salaries, so that I have the freedom to do that, right? That meant um, um, really taking an interest in our kids in a different way and really being intentional about pulling technology out of our house and double down as a family. So wherever we end up, right, then that's where we're going to be. And so, which of course allows you to be a little more authentic in all of your space, which then allows you to grow real roots, right? And so it's just this reciprocal, um, the less baggage I bring to a situation, the more chances I have to actually root there, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, what I do know is that my wife and I are together on this, wherever this is, and that... Um, really trying to double down and create authentic, holy beings, kids, right? And that if we end up in a tiny house on the back of a truck, then I won't be ideal. I <laughs> wouldn't be a big fan. <laughs> um, but that it would be the same holy blessed time as this in this extraordinary city at this just otherworldly extraordinary university, right? I mean, it's just a magic place we're at right now. Hmm. Um, and just trying to hold it loosely, which then again allows... Um, more space for people to put things in your hand. So I don't know. Hmm. It's a moment of grace and it's a moment of privilege and I hope it lasts for the next 10 or 15 years. I'd like to get my kids through school. That would be cool. Um, and it's new territory for us. I never moved. I never moved. Um, the first time I moved was in college, when I went to college. And then um, I think my son moved more times when he was five until I did when I was 30. Hmm. So we've moved him all over the place and little house here and a rent house there and the apartment here. And so... Um, I'd love them to have some stability, hmm. and um, I'm, I'm, we're in a season of blessing right now. 
That's awesome. And as long um, as I can just keep walking up to strangers in a coffee shop and them not like <laughs> feeling like, I guess that's the Nashville way. I guess people just walk up to you like, hey, that. what's up? You want to? Yeah. But you remember when we first met? I walked up to you and I was like, hey, listen, I got a plan for you. You did. For your you, whole pivot thing. You immediately pitched a TV show. I've got a show. <laughs> um, you should turn this into a conference. A, uh, I know this little guy most people haven't heard of, Tony Robbins. You should be like that guy, except with the pivot. Um, and so, again, I get so excited and fired up when I think of something that's so transformative like this. But um, I'm, I'm coming to believe that maybe the Nashville way, people just walk up and be like, dude, I got an idea. So, I need to well, I'm glad, I'm glad you did, because I'm glad we're friends. This is, um, but for real, what you do is awesome. By the way, I haven't told you this, and you can cut all this out, but your record is astounding. Oh, dude. It's just, I'm not, I'm being serious. It's astounding. And it came from, can I just, can I psychoanalyze you for a second? <laughs> sure. I feel very similar in our trajectory, you as a musician and me as an edu- a person who works in education. Mm. And I got to a point where I said, I'm done. I need to go to this other place. And then I had to start asking, why was I even doing that? And that was the point when I could authentically sit in this place and say, I, I think I can be of value here, right? Or mm. that's when this record comes out of nowhere, dude. And it's just, I got it. I told you I got a stocking <laughs> for Christmas. And I drove well, the first time Hank and I were going to the woods. My son Hank and I were going to the woods. And I was like, is this for real? I almost called you like at 4.30 in the morning to be like, dude. And I was like, we don't know each other that well. That'd be kind of weird. <laughs> um but there is a there is a this way to that record, right? There's a depth to that that is just God Almighty. Um, and so I don't know you well enough to have Doctor filled you back, but wow. um, you just don't stumble on records like that very often. That was, that was something to behold. So it's in my CD player right now. Dude, it was good. That really means a lot. Thank you. Hasn't paid your electric bill, but it uh, <laughs> it's super right. Like, <laughs> can I monetize it? Like, thank yous, but yeah. God Almighty, Andy, that was a great record, dude. I appreciate that. This is a great episode, if I may. Oh, episode of the, of the of the the pivot. The pivot. Is that French? <laughs> is that French? <laughs> man, that was. Whew, that was powerful, and uh, man, what a what a dude. If you're listening to this in early February when we release this, uh, say a prayer for Belmont University. They recently lost a student in a really tragic and kind of public incident, and uh, John's been involved in uh, helping the family and friends in that situation. And uh, So if you see that come across the news or um, just if it comes across your heart, uh, say a prayer for the work that he's doing and the families and uh, community that's involved in that tragedy. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Normally I'd give a shout out to where you could follow John on Instagram or something, but as we've heard, he's not on it. And, uh, that sounds like it's a pretty good thing for him. And I'm a little bit jealous. Um, but you can follow me at Andrew Osinga, or you can go, uh, find out more about my music and uh, other things at andrewosinga.com. Again, the survey, andrewosinga.com slash survey. That would be so awesome. Take you a couple minutes, totally anonymous, really, really helpful. We've got another great one next week. I know you're going to love it. So look for us on your phone next week. But that's it for us today. Now go do something awesome.